0: How many of us when we were kids would use our imaginations to build big worlds in our mind to create conflicts between heroes and villains? We would play out good versus evil with nothing but sticks in the backyard and towels attached to our shirts. How many of us would do that? We would our dream was to just live out our imagination. I know that was me. And I know that definitely applies to our guest today. Today, I am speaking with former Marvel artist and all-around great guy, Ron Friends. We are talking about his run on Thor in the late 80s, early 90s, and we get to talk about so many different things today. So, Here on Across the Bifrost today, I am excited to have this conversation with Ron. I am your host, Ryan Doze, and we're not gonna waste any more time. Let's get to our conversation. Listeners, welcome to this week's interview. I have a fantastic uh, conversation lined up for you with Thor artist Ron Friends, and we're going to jump into our conversation with him, and uh, we're going to pick his brain a little bit about Thor and uh, his career working on this character and, and and some other stuff as well. But just want to welcome Ron to the podcast. Hi, Ron. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, Ryan. Thank you for asking me on. I appreciate it.
0: Well, uh, it's our pleasure for sure. The first question I usually like to ask my guests is, where in the nine realms do you call home? Pittsburgh,
1: Pennsylvania, born and raised, still live here to this day, never found a reason compelling enough to leave. So uh, (laughs) I'm right now in my studio, I'm about maybe a mile from the hospital I was born in so oh my gosh uh, i do not travel very far field
0: <laughs> you, you literally have not traveled far from you know from day no, one i guess no i
1: i never i was never on a plane until i started working for marvel comics and flew out to denver for the uh return of the jedi premiere that was my first time on a plane so there you oh go. oh my gosh
0: wow that's uh <laughs> i wasn't on a plane until i was like a senior in high school so like i i i totally feel that speaking of working for marvel i was uh hoping you would just tell us kind of your origin story with being an artist and then uh you know writing getting up to the point where you were working for marvel
1: okay well i mean I, i can give it to you in the thumbnail i uh i've been drawing all my life i can't remember a time when i didn't draw uh the earliest comic book i have a brother that's three years older randall and the oldest comic book we can remember having was a 1964 issue of world's finest. Oh, with awesome. Superman and Batman. So I would have only been four years old. He would have been seven. So that means he was responsible for, for bringing it in. And again, I've been drawn all my life. So when I got into high school, I did a Voc the last two years of commercial art. I had a great instructor there that made me realize that, you know, my my dream was to work in comics and to draw Mar- for Marvel and to draw Spider-Man when, from the time I was six or seven. If you asked me what I wanted to do, that was it. Yeah. Uh, during the uh, the time in the commercial art course, my instructor made me realize that if I don't work for Marvel, I'm going to have to be qualified to do other kinds of commercial art. So I broadened my experience a little bit and tried some other things and then. And I also won a half scholarship to the two-year school of uh, the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, and I spent another two years kind of broadening my abilities and my skill, and uh, but but never lost my love for comics. Uh, so I, my intention was always to try to get in at Marvel. Uh, Jim Shooter, who's also from Pittsburgh, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, was appearing in Pittsburgh at a shop, and I showed him my samples. He was he seemed to like them. Uh, told me to send them in xerox them and send them in i did uh and then i didn't hear from them for like a year and within that year i had to get work so i found work at a local animation studio that did uh uh, local and regional tv commercials but they also worked on the two creep show movies because uh, george romero wanted to use local talent wow and uh we also worked on the Tom Petty video, Running Down a Dream, although I didn't really do much on that. I didn't do much at all on that, but the studio worked on that. Okay. So those are the more national uh, projects that they, they were known for. Um, and I worked for them and worked for Marvel. About, you know, like I said, about that year later, I got a call from Al Milgram, who had seen my samples and was calling for Louise Jones, who was looking for somebody to do some fill-in case stars. Uh, So I did the KSARs and started working out of Louise's office, which is how I got Star Wars and Indiana Jones and, you know, a few other projects Um, as Spider-Man appeared in KSAR. Tom DeFalco was the editor of the Spider-Man titles. He saw that, saw that I didn't ruin the character. Uh, (laughs) Hired hired me to do Marvel team-ups. So I did Marvel team-up all of this while I was still working days at the studio. Uh, And then I was, approached about doing six months of spider-man while john meta jr got x-men up and running uh and at the time i was offered spider-man i figured well obviously i'm doing okay with marvel they seem to be happy with what i'm doing and i took the plunge and quit at the animation studio and became full-time freelance and and uh never looked back uh, you know it. it worked out with Marvel uh I was under contract for several years during Thor and Thunderstrike but beyond that I was always a freelancer so, and I would, I was also I guess you could be consider me under contract when I was doing Superman as well uh you know the, the couple of years I was on Superman for DC yeah and, uh, hey. but yeah I mean it you know it, it's it's a little scary sometimes being freelance but uh you know now I'm working for an independent publisher, uh, Binge Books, out of California. Okay, and uh, where we have a new book coming in August. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, Defalco and I met early on, and uh, he hired me for Team Up. We met at a convention. We found out we really loved the same type of Marvel comics, and uh, so Danny Fingeroff put us together on Spider Man and you know, it's like finding the other half of your brain, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I love working with the Falco. If I had my, if I had my choice, I'd never work with anybody else, but sometimes fate steps in and you have to find other, uh, other alternatives.
0: You have to have your own different team up, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to be open to it anyway. Uh, I've had some people say that, you know, working with the Falco held me back. I don't believe that at all. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think my best work has been with the Falco and, uh, you know, so I, I, uh, I, mi- I miss that. I miss that, uh, monthly team up, but, uh, Tom's actually doing some work for binge books. So who knows? We may work together again on a project, Who
0: knows? Uh, 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 a reunion. It might be. In yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I mean, binge books has uh, had some success getting Dave Michelinie and Roger Stern and, Todd Dezago and several other, you know, uh, veteran comics writers, working on their projects. So, uh, you know, the, this uh, the book we have coming out in August, The Heroes Union, is uh, written by Roger Stern, penciled by me, and inked by Sal Buscema. So, uh, you know, <laughs> That's I, it's, awesome not, it's, it's, not, it's not like I'm I'm I was traded back down to the miners or anything. You know, I'm still uh, yeah. it's still powerful stuff. I, I'm looking forward to people getting a chance to see it.
0: I mean, those are those are heavy hitters right there. I uh, speaking of heavy hitters, I, I wanted to rewind a little bit to your like sure. some of the first few books you worked at at Marvel. You mentioned Kazar. Um, uh, you you also mentioned that uh, you worked on the Star Wars books. Now, yes. I'm uh modern readers uh, mostly. I would assume some of my listeners might know about current Marvel Star Wars, but that like late 70s early 80s Star Wars what was it like writing those books and then and then like your time with Spider-Man those two uh, the two titles that jumped out to me before you got to some of your Thor stuff
1: yeah uh well working on Star Wars was interesting I I loved working with Joe Duffy uh she's terrific we you know we became friends while we were on the book together a uh, lot of phone conversations and i loved her writing i the the fact that she was able to capture that that humor that made the uh the first trilogy uh so special and and made marvel comics so special so i really enjoyed that that aspect of it and everything i learned about partnership i learned from joe duffy which i think made me a better partner for Defoe. you know um uh, so i i enjoyed the, the work experience a lot. Louise Jones, Danny Fingeroth were the editorial team. They were a lot of fun to work with and uh, uh, very easy to work with. Lucasfilm, you know, they were occasionally a, a pain because, I mean, what what your younger viewers might not realize is Marvel was the first to license those characters yeah. before the novels and before all that other stuff, you know, before the extended universe that they talk about now, Marvel yeah, was the yeah. first. And we had, you know, we had a couple of hiccups. I, I understand Dave Michelinie, before we got there, Dave Michelinie wanted to do a story with a second Death Star. And of course they went, no. Um, we'll never
0: do we, that. <laughs> yeah,
1: we had, we had uh, the characters that we created. What were they called? The, the Losbies? Yeah. The Hoojibs were the little bunny guys that Walt created. Uh, the Losbies that we did in an issue looked a lot more, uh, they were very wide-eyed, and they looked a lot more like stuffed animals. And we didn't realize it at the time, but we were stepping on the toes of the uh, 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 Return of the Jedi. What the heck were they called? The, the Ewoks were little- coming. The Ewoks, yes. yes we didn't yes. know about the Ewoks. But when, when Lucasfilm saw our original uh, Losbys, they kind of choked and, and went, well, no, they have to be redrawn. So Tom Palmer went and made them more kitty cat like he gave them more like kitty cat eyes and and they colored them pink and blue and all this kind of stuff because originally they were they were tan and brown and had wide eyes and this whole bit um, so they had to be redesigned a little bit because and Lucasfilm wouldn't tell you why they would just say yeah. you know in that in that one story we introduced the losbies and we had Luke on a hang glider so I think they were thinking. <laughs> Is what is there a leak somewhere? You know that kind of thing.
0: What do they know about so, the uh, Jedi that we don't?
1: <laughs> so we we've had a co- We had a couple of things like that that you know, and there were certain things that they just said no to. Um, but they also, I mean, once the extended universe began and they started doing children's books and all this kind of stuff, the who jib showed up in in uh, children's books. So a lot of the stuff that Marvel was creating, you know, was absorbed into the larger Lucasfilm world and yeah. that, that's kind of cool too you know yeah uh, i don't think i don't think i mean aside from the losbys i don't think there's anything directly that i created that, that really made an impact but i enjoyed working on all those characters rick dual and danny and uh you know those characters like that uh, were a lot of fun and working with joe was great so i mean i i was a big luke skywalker fan and uh, enjoyed doing that aspect of it i got to do them at a pretty cool point between uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return, you know, um, we only did—I only stuck around for like one or two issues past Return of the Jedi, but—and uh, that was interesting because Joe had had this story where we, where Boba Fett got out of the uh, Sarlacc pit, and of course the edict from Lucasfilm was, okay, you can do this story, but he has to be back in the Sarlacc by the end of the story. <laughs> And she just okay, and she kind of played it for comedy, you know. So uh, like that, that was another, that one. was another Lucasfilm edict, yeah. And and then of course he wasn't he was doomed to not get back out of the Sarlacc until uh, Mandalorian. So there oh, you go. God.
0: And boy did he come back! My gosh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, right. see. Well, uh, you mentioned earlier on that you're like when you, when you were a kid, like Spider-Man was your guy. So you got to draw Spider-Man for a while. And was it like a dream come true yeah. at that point? Did you yeah. like, think it could get any better than drawing Spider-Man? I,
1: I it can't, it can't get any better than drawing Spider-Man. Drawing Spider-Man with Tom DeFalco is the best thing in the world. I'd still be doing it if I didn't get fired. <laughs> DeFalco and I were fired by Jim Housley. Otherwise, you know, I, that. I'd still be hanging onto my desk, and they'd have to pull me off by my ankles, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I get, I get, I get that entirely. The, uh, was there, was there anything about you know drawing Spider-Man um, that uh, just like when you would get other maybe other pitches or projects, like of things to work on? Um, was Spider-Man just like now? I'm good. I, I I'm, I'm yeah. getting to draw Spider-Man.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, working with the Falco on Spider Man was a, an absolute pleasure. It only became a little rocky uh, when um, when the editorial uh, per, uh, personnel shifted, uh, yeah. and then it, and then it became a trial. Uh, I, I don't know why. I, I can't speak to why any of it happened, but what happened was the schedule started to get away from us, not by any fault of our own. I mean, Tom DeFalco was doing some traveling, but Tom's never been late with anything in his life. But the editor decided that at one point he flew to Pittsburgh with DeFalco and he gave us a schedule that we had to, to meet to continue working on Spider-Man. And uh, so we went back to our corners and we within a few weeks, we met that schedule. And then he gave us a new schedule that we had to meet that that said we were already late. And it, it there were the games like that that were being played, that I I mean I, honestly all I can really all I can think is that he just didn't like what we were doing. Uh, he referred he referred to our Spider Man as the boring corporate Spider Man. Okay, and. He had already fired Al Milgram and Louise Jones and their art teams. And he was more interested in, well, he was interested in what Peter David was doing on Peter Parker, which, you know, the, the death of Gene DeWolf and all that kind of stuff. And he was also also interested in the darker. Do you remember like the Mark Beecham stuff? Uh, uh, you remember that? I, uh, I will be I'm, honest.
0: I am not the biggest like Spider-Man completist. Okay. Like I'll catch on this here there was there. An,
1: Yeah, there was an illustrator named Mark Beecham that was very much the kind of look he was looking for and he wanted he wanted more grim and gritty on spider-man he wanted more street level stuff and everything so you know his his feeling was that uh the falco and i were doing the boring corporate spider-man and uh i think he was looking for looking for reasons to get us off the book he was either trying to force us off by schedule or whatever it took uh at one point he claims that at the time he fired us, he was planning a, you know, like a quarterly book because we couldn't meet a schedule. He was planning a quarterly book that would keep us off doing bland corporate Spider-Man, but no, no plans were ever really made for that title. Okay. Um, and, and at the time we were fired, Virginia Ramita, who was the uh, uh, scheduler, the, the, the schedule coordinator, Came into Defalco and said, "You're the most on time of everybody in the house. I use you guys as the example to beat other people over the head. What, what's going on?" And Tom said, "You're going to have to go talk to the editor. I have no idea." Well, so okay. uh, yeah, so that that last last period on Spider-Man was oh. not ideal. Okay, but but we we worked very very hard to stay where we were because we both really enjoyed the title. Uh, you know if you're talking about a guy who wanted to do spider-man since he was six or seven and then finally gets a chance to do spider-man i was not being you know uh, uh nonchalant about the schedule i was very interested in keeping that job but it just was not to be and uh things like that happened it yeah. knocked me off it knocked me off my pins for a while uh, the only other thing i had going on at the time was a uh, i was scheduled to do a uh graphic novel with joe duffy a punisher graphic novel called okay. uh assassin's guild it was ultimately done by jorge Safino. and he did a fantastic much better job than i ever could have done okay um, and i was locked up on that i i wasn't able to really work on that well and uh so i gave that back and it that that damaged my standing with marvel to some degree i got a real lecture from the editor on that project and uh so i wasn't sure what was going to happen next and um I was scared. I figured I might have to get a real job, but uh, mm-hmm. what ended up happening was Ralph Macchio offered me two fill-in fours. At the same time, Mike Carlin offered me uh, the first Superman annual uh, oh, wow. with, with uh, Titano, the one I did with uh, with John Bur- John Byrne wrote it uh so those those three projects all kind of happened at the same time so i figured okay i'm back <laughs> i slowly rebuilt my confidence and bread Breeding in those three projects and uh he and i are have been friends for years and so things started feeling like they were back on the right
0: track so, so you have uh and and like he's a bulk of what i wanted to talk about la- uh, a little bit later on but you keep uh you know mentioning Tom DeFalco and how, uh, you know, formative really like your guys' relationship was creatively. I just wanted to like my, my introduction to your artwork, uh, is really these, these two issues of Thor behind me. I've got issue 403. Uh, it's an Enchantress Executioner story. I freaking love Enchantress and Executioner. And then, um, this great, I, I bought this literally by the cover uh, alone because I wanted to see what was inside of it. But uh, a Thor versus the Juggernaut issue. I was like, well, that that has to be good. Um, well,
1: well, yeah, and I can thank Jack Kirby for that because it's his cover. We that's that's sweet. one of the it's one of the several covers we did based on his Thor Hercules cover. Yeah.
0: Okay, because yeah, because the posing is so similar. That, you know, yeah. I, you giving me the inside track there. That's awesome. Oh, that, uh,
1: I mean, everybody, everybody has ripped that off at some point. I, I mean, mean it's, Jack it, is the foundation for everything we do.
0: Which which actually brings me to um, talking a little bit, uh, you know, talking about your run on Thor, because that's why my podcast exists, to talk about Thor um, okay. and his world. And in uh, my research, uh, you took over drawing Thor in 1987. You said you got two fill-in issues for that. Right. Um, and that's kind of how the, the opportunity came about. But uh, I wanted to for listeners, you know that we we may never work on a Marvel comic. We may never put together a comic book. Can you kind of like maybe like footnote, uh, not footnotes, but like spark notes version? Like, how does that come together? And then, what was your role within? You know, how did your role play play out in the creative process? Well, the the way
1: that came about was actually that um, Ralph Macchio was an editor I had done some work for on What If. And uh, I think some, you know, some other projects like that, I believe. So I was, you know, he and I knew each other, and Tom DeFalco, who was also fired off of Spider-Man with me, we were looking for something to do together, and uh, it was Frank Miller was running uh, wrapping up his run on Daredevil with uh, David Mazzucchelli, wow. and he had he had left Matt in a very happy space with uh, Karen, uh, you know, the last shot from his run is them walking hand in hand down Hell's Kitchen as the sun rises behind them and it's a wonderful new day. And uh, Tom and I thought, you know, this would be a great time for us to come on and kind of do the kind of thing that we like to do, which is not all grim and gritty and kind of bring the dare back to Daredevil instead of the devil, you know. Or the
0: swashbuckling Um, kind of Daredevil.
1: Very much so, yes, yes. Um, So that was, you know, we, we, Tom had gone to Ralph and said, you know, we would be interested to in put our hats in the ring for, for Daredevil. I did a pinup you know, with Daredevil smiling and waving and you know, kind of keep us in mind type of thing. And he said, okay, I, I will make a note, but what I really need help with now is Waltz leaving Thor and we got to make sure that we don't lose ground you know i and uh so could you do me a couple of fill-ins for thor and tom said yeah okay if that's if that's what it takes to get daredevil we'll be great you know that'll be great so we did the uh the the secret wars fill-in with the enchantress fighting the big all the bad guys that like happens during secret wars yeah and then we did the uh future thor uh as as a fill-in and i was a big i was a big thor fan i was you know uh a big Buscema fan, a big Kirby fan. So I loved working on those Thors, uh, especially with Brett and with Tom. So we did those two fillings and uh, Tom said, you know, we met with Ralph and said, so how are we doing? And he goes, well, I do have a book I want you to do. And he goes, yeah, Daredevil, right? (laughs) I'd like you to do Thor. And Tom said, "I, I can't do Cosmic. I don't want to do Cosmic. And he goes, you just did two issues. And he said, yeah, but I don't know. So he called me and I went, what are you, crazy? Yeah, let's take it. You know, I mean, if that's what he's offering us, let's go. And Tom said, really? And I said, yeah, I I love Thor. So we can do this. I mean, I know you can do it, Tom. So to test himself, to see if he would be able to do cosmic and do grand mythological type stories, he did the... War of the started the War of the Pantheons, introduced the Celtic Pantheon, and then took us right into the three or four part Celest, alone against the Celestials. That was Tom dumping jumping in at the deep end. So he figured, now well, let's find out now if I can do cosmic. If I can, great. If I can't, you know, we'll say I'm sink or swim. and move on. Right, exactly. Sink or swim. So that's how that started, and uh, we ended up on Thor for, what, like seven years or something? I was going to say,
0: you, you, uh, you go from, like, writing, you know, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man to right. literally the, the god who, you know, goes up against these it, cosmic deities. It was, it was
1: an interesting transition, and it wasn't it wasn't without its bumps. Uh, there were some early issues with Thor. I'm not going to point them out to you because, you know, but, but if, I, if I talk about it, you, somebody will go looking for it. Um, there are some early issues where everybody's got little tiny pinheads <laughs> because I was trying to adjust from doing kind of the Ditko-esque regular people in Spider-Man. Yeah. Doing, you know, what Ralph liked about my stuff is that all my gods, Balder and all those guys, all looked like they were all, you know, six five and, and grand and big, and, but it also meant that I was trying so hard to make everybody big that there were tiny little pinheads on some of the people <laughs> and uh so that was part of the adjustment and interestingly enough years later when pat olive switched over from untold tales of spider-man and he was doing some fill-ins for us on thor and everything he went through exactly the same thing but because old man friends had gone through it first I was able to say, "Be careful of the pinheads," and he went, "Oh!" And he he beat it. He beat it much faster than I did, you know. But yeah, that was that was part of that because they're 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 the opposites. I mean, uh, a Spider-Man story is very intimate, you know. Sometimes nine panels a page to do the real human stuff, the way Steve Ditko did it, um, you know. And and Thor is is widescreen. Thor is big budget, widescreen, you know. Sp- Uh, what what did they used to call vista vision you know big boom yeah yeah.
0: he has to be epic in scope
1: yeah yeah a lot of double page splashes half splashes splash pages you know all that kind of stuff so it it was there are there was definitely a a difference in the type of storytelling which that's why i've talked about the fact you study ditko if you're going to do spider-man you study kirby if you're going to do thor period you know that's the only way to really approach it but coming in after coming in after Walt, we knew we couldn't do Walt. We knew we didn't have the relationship with the actual myth the way that Walt did, you know. So we figured if we tried to do Walt, we'd fall on our ass. So we uh, we embraced, you know, more the the Lee Kirby approach to Thor and and just making him a superhero again, really, because uh, you know uh, to, to answer Tom's worry we also discussed Thor's relationship with Earth people you know we brought him back to Earth more and had him fight more supervillains and we wanted to, to recreate his bond with people so that's why we introduced Eric Masterson and made him part of the supporting cast for for a year or two and then bonded them and did all that you know I mean that was all it was all planned from the very beginning, and it was all part of not wanting to go back to Don Blake, but, but wanting to reinforce Thor's relationship to differ from any other. That that's what I that's what I really miss in some of the later the other treatments of, of Thor that I see is his which i thought was very important to the strip was his relationship with people is that unlike every other every other god in asgard he thinks we're fantastic having spent time amongst us (laughs) and having spent time as don blake he knows he recognizes the glory in us getting up every day knowing that we have a finite amount of time on this planet but still doing the things we do, still building things and writing poetry and, and living life and uh, embracing everything, uh, knowing that, you know, that we have, you know, 80 some years on this planet. That to him is braver than anything a warrior in Asgard does, you know, and he, that's how he sees it. And he has made it his mission to help us in that you know to protect us he 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 thinks we're great he thinks we're better than we think we are uh and and a lot of people in asgard don't get that they don't i mean we we had a couple of opportunities storytelling wise to uh to have him have a conversation with another god and have them go but they their lights shine so briefly what is what's the big deal with people you know and
0: why bother
1: and he explained it yeah and he explained it that that's the whole point. their, their glory lies in their tranches. you know the fact that they're not around forever. they don't have time to be lazy. you know they go out and do it and uh, and, and they deserve a, uh, kudos for that, you know and I've always enjoyed that aspect of Thor. Um, that's what makes him unique from other gods. So when people write Thor as this you know this arrogant idiot who just walks around saying, I'm a god and uh, you know, <laughs> Iron Man better respect me. and things. No, that, that's not who Thor, remember in the same way that in Spider-Man's origin Peter Parker learned with great power there must also come great responsibility the, w- Thor's origin of Don Blake rediscovering his godhood was all about him learning humility Yes you know Thor is not arrogant, that's Hercules Thor is not arrogant Thor is, you know, the, the origin of Thor is him going from an arrogant child to a sympathetic adult. And I thought the movie, ca- even without Don Blake, I thought the, the original movie captured yeah, that really yeah. very well. You know, um, he learned how to serve something larger than himself. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and had this, you know, this relationship with, with Earth. So I, that's always been the core of the character to me. When we did, um, unfortunately, not a lot of people saw it. But back in like 2010, we did a uh, five-issue Thunderstrike miniseries where we did the 616 version of Kevin taking over as Thunderstrike. And, uh, it's
0: Kevin Masterson, right?
1: Kevin Masterson, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, we had already had him as Thunderstrike in the MC2 universe. But this was the this was the six one six version of Kevin becoming uh, inheriting the mace and becoming a version of Thunderstrike, and there's a scene in there where Thor appreciates what Kevin has done, and Kevin is kind of pissed at Thor because he didn't show up at his dad's funeral and all this kind of stuff, um, and and Thor says, you know that you know sometimes my time is not my own, and and you'll learn humility as I have and Thor and and Kevin says yeah the the winged helmet and the big cape I'm not thinking humility is really one of your problems and and Thor again makes the point that I'm I'm humbled every time I see every time I think of Eric's sacrifice and every time I see a human willing to sacrifice themselves i'm humbled and he said uh, as as i was with yours your willingness to sacrifice and he actually kneels and bows to kevin and there's a valkyrie standing there and she can't believe it you know she can't believe that that thor is making this gesture and neither can kevin and you know kevin's thing is humility from a god what a day i'm having you know that kind of thing um so i've always thought that that was really the core of the character and uh it's not always served as well as I, as I would hope, but you know, there's got, there has to be room for other treatments of the character. You know, I mean, I, I I don't have all the answers on Thor, but that's just my personal
0: opinion. Well, and over, over 60 years of that character existing in Marvel comics, like uh, so many different, so many different creators have had their hand at interpreting him. uh, You know, so there's, I mean, luckily, luckily there's, bound,
1: there's bound to be other interpretations and Thor's gone through a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, he, I mean, his his first issues are in the early 60s. We're we're right. uh, we're, we're bound no, to, I mean,
1: early on, Ryan. I mean, early on, they they I mean, the origin of Thor is really Don Blake becomes Thor. They didn't come up with the idea that he was always Thor and Don Blake was created by Odin until years later. You know, I mean. So there's that, I mean, that, that was, that was uh, retroactive, that was a retrofit, you know, um, because early on, Don Blake finds the cane, finds the hammer, who, whosoever holds his hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor, but then as he started to meet the other gods, they kind of lost track of that and he's just Thor, and they're going, well, wait a minute, Stan finally said, well, how is that? How how are we making this work? (laughs) And they finally, but it wasn't until much later that they they finally told the story of how Odin created Don Blake to teach Thor humility. That was years later. So, you know, that was the first big retroactive retrofit on Thor, you know, uh, which, you know, which explained a lot, and further defined his relationship with people
0: so actually as ron as a part of this podcast every thursday i release an episode uh that's a little different than my monday episodes called my throwback thursday episode and i'm going i'm going issue by issue through the history of thor and i think i'm at like journey into mystery 100 right now so i'm 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 still very early on but like my goal is to do every uh every issue of thor's main run um well, and I, think
1: yeah. the one, I, think, I think the one i'm talking about is the one that had this cover behind me here isn't it um, uh-huh. okay let me take a look wow uh i will i'll, I'll have, I to have to move move i have over. to put my glasses on to, to read what issue number it is hang on a second
0: <laughs> yeah yeah go for it
1: it's uh, 158 after it had become the mighty Thor.
0: Okay, so they they finally
1: told they finally told that story. Now that I might be wrong though, that might not be that issue, but I've got
0: a little bit of I I've got a little bit of time before I get there.
1: Well it was the uh it was the I think it was the issue that has him fighting a storm giant on the cover, actually. But it was uh yeah, I mean it it was into the Kirby Coletta phase and all this kind of stuff that they finally decided to create that backstory until then until then there was the big question of well, wait a minute. If Don if he's not Don Blake who became Thor, if he's always been Thor, then where did Don Blake come from and they finally answered that question you know so uh, you yeah, so that whole relationship with people were it was always something that uh, you know was being played with um, you know but i I don't like it when they when they play Thor as the arrogant God character, especially when he's interacting with the Avengers because I've, I've seen him act that way with Tony Stark, you know, like he was, I'm just, I'll just put you down. Like when, when NASCAR was was hanging out over Montana or something like that, Oklahoma. he had a big fight with Oklahoma. He had a big, he had a, he had a big, Well, he, he had a big fight. One of the big square states. He had a big fight with Tony Stark where he, you know, he treated Tony like, what are you, what are you wasting your time for you bug? I can smash you, you know? And it's like, Tony was one of his best friends, you know, I mean, he would, he would march through hell for Captain America. He respects Steve so much that he took orders from Cap, you know, he he respects the other Avengers. Incredible. So I don't see him ever taking that kind of an attitude. That's Hercules. Hercules will take that attitude.
0: If he doesn't respect the Avengers, I mean, then he's just, then he's just Odin. Then he's just his dad. Uh, He respects, he
1: respects you and me more than, he's been shown to respect the Avengers at times, you know, and that's, that's just how I see the character. So,
0: so you've mentioned a few times a name that I I really want to get your opinion of as an artist um, that like you've mentioned Jack Kirby's name a few times. Yes. And when you come onto a book that he is, you know, he's known for so many things. I mean, he's, he's called the King for a reason like you sure. um, sure. specifically with Jack Kirby's Thor, what did you look back at his interpretation of the character and draw? Oh, yeah. On it yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, what yeah was in, fact, in fact, in fact, it was a bone of contention with with Brett Breeding, unfortunately, uh, because those first two fill-ins I did were my natural style, which tends to be more Sal Buscema, John Buscema, you know, type of thing, and Brett really likes that. Brett's a, a Buscema fan from way back, a John Buscema fan, so he enjoyed that stuff. But when I got the regular assignment, I went back and started looking at Kirby. And uh, I started to, in, uh, to uh, what's the word, interpret that. I started to use that in my penciling work. And, and Brett wasn't comfortable with it, he didn't, he didn't like it. He he found himself actually trying to change some Kirby shots into more Bacema shots and things like that and to varying degrees of success. And, and and I felt bad about it, but I thought it was something that was really necessary to capture what I wanted to capture, which was anytime you do a character, you don't want to just be the next guy in a 60-year-long game of telephone, right? If you only look at the guy right before you, then it becomes like, you know, the game of telephone that I'm talking about, where Absolutely. everybody tells the story, and as you get to the end, suddenly, you know, it's like, At one point, Storm was given a black leather costume that had black on it, but they left it white. Instead of putting like a blue for a blue-black or a gray for a gray-black, they just used black and they left it white. Over time, that became a white costume because people stopped putting the black. But nobody decided... I don't think anybody ever decided, oh, by the way, Storm now has a white costume. It's just...
0: It just it happened. started
1: out as a black costume and people started doing less and less okay. black shading and it becomes a white costume. The same thing happened with um, The Beast. The Beast went from gray when he was first the hairy beast in this, in this uh, Astonishing what was it? Astonishing Tales? Whatever book it was, I don't know. Uh, but when Hank McCoy first became The Beast, he was first, he was gray. They they kind of went the way hey. they would do with the Hulk, where originally he was he had gray fur and then they decided, no, he has black fur. So at one point during the course of the story, he's knocked out, he wakes up, and now his fur is black. It was a further mutation, and his fur was black. Over the years, they stopped putting, you know, they put less and less black on him. And now, if you ask anybody what color uh, Hank, Hank McCoy's fur is, they'll blue. say blue, yeah. and to the point that he was blue in X Men 3, right? He's blue Ooh. in the X-Men movies now. But he was. He, no, I don't think anybody ever decided he was blue. It just kind of happened. That's the game of telephone that I'm talking about. Okay. okay. So you don't want to be, you don't want to be the next guy in the chain. I don't anyway. So when I'm awarded a series, I go back to the first appearance. Okay. I read, I I read I read all the Lee Ditko Spider-Mans to find out what made Spider-Man different and unique. I went back and read the first couple of years of Thor stories because you want to answer the question, why Thor? He's not just a big guy wearing blue and red with a red cape. I mean, there's, there's already a guy like that, right? Why Thor? Why is he special? Why tell stories about him? Yeah. And to to do that, you need to read the original stories and you need to take some part of that and recognize the root. So I was, that's why I was trying to, you know, give him the Kirby uh, air of, of magnificence, if you want to call it that. You know that, that the gods look impressive and that they're larger than life, and yeah, they're not. He's not just another superhero. He's a god, you know, and, and he needs to move like that. I mean, and my Asgard was always Kirby's Asgard, you know, and Bisma's Asgard. So, you know, it's a golden city. It's like Disneyland for adults, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, we, we did a couple of stories in Asgard where Tom would say, you know, these Asgardians walked down an alley and I'm going, I wonder what an Asgardian alley would look like <laughs> because it's not going to have, it's not going to have garbage cans and stuff, you know, I no. mean, so it was like cobblestone and kind of cool looking it was you know it wasn't an, uh, an alley like in new york it was a, it was different and i have a very firm idea in my mind of what asgard looks like like in fact the first movie captured it really really well yeah you know, with the guy in golden statues and uh, a lot of the plazas and a lot of trees and all this kind of stuff you know a uh, mixed in you know, a lot of nature mixed in with all the the really cool Kirby architecture and stuff. So I thought they did a wonderful job with Asgard when, when all the times that it was shown in the films. But um, you know, I, I, you know, and, and nothing against I, because Walt would tend to do the uh, the more Norse looking buildings and all this kind of stuff. And and nothing against that treatment because I do feel there's room for all of that. You know. And, yeah. If you go to an Asgardian suburb, I mean, even in our stories, we showed that there were farmers and stuff, you know, that there were suburbs outside the Golden City that would suburbs. look more like that, you know. So, uh, you know, it, it all works one way or the other. But, yeah, you have to develop your own sense of who these characters are and what they look like. I actually have a friend from, uh, that I met in junior high. We became very close in high school. In fact, he's a uh, very famous illustrator. His name's Daniel Horn, who okay. has his own, you know him? He has his own Facebook page. He does I, incredible
0: paintings. The, he, name, the name sounds familiar enough that I, I probably need to refresh myself.
1: He did fantasy paintings for a while. Now he does uh, like hammer film uh, monster paintings and stuff. The guy, he's incredibly talented. But he and I met in high school and have stayed friends to this day. And quite frankly, he was my model for Thor. Because okay. he was much taller than me, handsome as hell, and everybody loved, everybody loved the guy. But he was also the gentlest, he, he still is, the gentlest human being I know. He, you know he, he used to play hockey in high school, and he would tell stories about bench clearing fights that they would have and everything, right? <laughs> but if you heard him talk, he, he has a very gentle voice. He has a very gentle demeanor he's just the most loving person you've ever met in your life. And he was, he was how I saw Thor. Okay. You know? I, so I was able to kind of get a handle on who I thought this character was. I frankly, I think Chris Hemsworth does it all very, very well. I mean, I am i don't like the fact that they've colloquialized him as quickly as they have. Okay. In the movies. But the other thing is you have to, you know, 60, 60 years of comic books Um isn't the same as movies that are being told in real time. You know, Thor, Thor would become more colloquial as he spent more time around us. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, for us, we, we brought in Eric Masterson. We had Eric Masterson take over to make our Thor colloquial. Because I, I do miss some of the, uh, you know, the I, I thought they played it really well, but I, I, I miss some of the more godlike Thor. You know, the, the, the interaction between Thor and Loki in the first Avengers movie just was fantastic. It just oh, it yeah. broke my heart. You know, I mean, it just broke my heart. I, I think they've done a wonderful job with that relationship. Uh, I'm jealous of it because by the time DeFelco and I got to Loki, he was pretty much lost. I mean, he was a sociopath. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty irredeemable. Yeah. Uh, so we played, we, we never forgot that Thor loved him. We never forgot that he and Thor were brothers and were raised together. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when we did that issue where Thor killed him, uh, well, Thor did kill him. He made the decision yeah, yeah. to kill him and he did kill him. He just was able to survive it. Um, even in that moment, if you remember, you know, Thor was saying that you'll always be. The brother that i loved and loki said and you'll always be the object of my hatred you know because he was so jealous and everything uh but you know it was always that was always a heartbreaking relationship for me because thor remembered what it was like to be best friends with loki and and be brothers you know uh he never realized that loki was resenting him all that time you know
0: so that so I want to get into your and Tom's, like, like maybe, like, dissect and dig that apart. But, like, when you're talking about, you know, Thor and Loki's relationship, I, I, don't, I don't know uh, how, how, uh, how deep into the Star Wars movies you've gotten. But I've always chosen to look at their relationship kind of like um, kind of like Anakin and Obi-Wan in uh, Revenge of the Sith. And yeah. when Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan is, you know, he, he, is, he is upstanding and he says, you know, I love you. And Anakin's like, no, I, I freaking hate you. Um, so, I mean, the very uh, yeah, no I, mean,
1: I, I do, I do feel that as they, as they got into whatever the teenage years are and stuff, they started to go separate directions. Uh, but Thor was always unaware that Loki resented him. That Loki resented him as you know the firstborn prince, and Loki resented him as being. You, do you ever? I mean, it's a, it's a human thing. I don't know if you've ever yeah. noticed, but if you watch siblings sometimes whatever the older sibling is the younger sibling is going to choose to be the opposite
0: absolutely yeah
1: i'm a middle child myself and okay. i have i have a brother that's 13 years older that i never really grew up with he was already away at college by the time i could form a thought but i have a brother that's 3 years older and it's not something that you, you decide it's not something you choose but it's whatever that sibling is, you tend to find your own thing. You, you wanna be something else, right? And be, based on how you feel about that person. And, you know, Loki for whatever reason, I, I don't know if it was ever established in the Lee Kirby stuff when Loki found out he was adopted. I, you know, I, I always kind of assumed Loki always knew he was adopted because in the original story, you. in the tales of Asgard where they find Loki, odin holds him up and shows him to the soldiers and says i'm going to adopt his kid right so (laughs) it's not like no one knew (laughs) yeah so it wasn't a secret so i don't know i don't know how it was a secret in the movies but obviously loki doesn't know until the first movie that he was adopted that he's a storm giant um so i i always assumed that loki knew he was adopted and that was part of the issue you know that that he would he resented Thor very early on because Thor was the natural son and that he knew he was never going to hold the throne and, and, and all the, all of those things, but Thor was not aware of that. Thor loved Loki like a brother. It was his brother. I mean, he never gave it another thought. He would have given his life for him at any given point. So, yeah, I mean, even more so than Anakin and and, uh, Obi-Wan because they grew up together, (laughs) you know, I mean, (laughs) When we have Thor say, "You're always going to be the 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 trusted friend of my youth," the shot of them is as as uh, like preteens riding on horses together. I mean, you know, yeah. Forget that they you know met each other and had an age difference where one was you know trained the other one. I mean, they grew up together. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, and, and you know, it it broke Thor's heart to do what he did to, to Loki. Uh, you know, they've, they've played with that relationship. You know, again, oh yeah. since, since we've been gone. I mean, Thor. Uh, at one point, Loki was gone, and it was Thor that Thor wanting him back so desperately that reincarnated Loki again.
0: That does it for the show today, everybody. I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation with Ron Friends. It was a lot of fun, and part two is even better. We talk a little bit more about Tom DeFalco. We talk about what he's up to nowadays with binge books and a new comic that he just came out with called The Heroes Union. So we talk about that. And, of course, there's so much more Thor talk that we get into. We talk about some of his favorite issues and panels. It's really a great part two. If you want to raise Review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes that would be awesome, that really would help us out. Also, follow us on Spotify. And if you want to chat Thor with us, go to Instagram, follow us at Across the Bifrost. Before we get out of here today, I wanted to let you all know that coming up this Thursday on our throwback Thursday episode of Across the Bifrost, we are breaking down issues 101 and 102 of Journey into Mystery. I'm bringing back one of my best friends, Eric Fisher, to break down those issues. And it is the first time that the Avengers show up in a Thor comic. So lots of great stuff coming up on that episode this Thursday. Be sure to check it out. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Across the Bifrost. We have enjoyed having you aboard the Rainbow Bridge with us. Have a great rest of your day. And remember, Stay worthy.